Psalm 16 is not an unusual psalm in its layout, really. We have here the really full range of emotions from David here. We have uh, a resolution. We have David really doing two things here, and uh, the title of the sermon here, this idea of the life of Christ in the life of a Christian, this is certainly a messianic psalm. It also applies, obviously, to, to God's people, to the elect, to the redeemed. And so we see that here in its richness. We uh, can see that David really begins the psalm and ends the psalm with a proclamation and a declaration to God. He's speaking to God. And then in the middle portion of the psalm here, we have David really preaching to himself. And this idea of preaching to oneself uh, may strike us perhaps as a little odd, maybe. Um, I would draw your attention to Psalm 42.11, for instance, as a pattern for this. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And so what we see here in this psalm and a number of other psalms is this idea that that we should preach to ourselves. We should proclaim the truth to ourselves. And Martin Lloyd-Jones probably said this better than others, but he, he really says that we can do one of two things. We can listen to ourselves, or we can preach to ourselves. And uh, likely you've seen the same t-shirts that I have. I do all the things that the voice in my head tells me. That would be listening to yourself, right? But we recognize that uh, that's not a good idea. That it would be far better for us to take the words of God and remind ourselves of them. And that's what David does here. As he declares and makes promises to God by His grace, he also then speaks the truth to himself. And we see that the full orb of Christian activity of demand, of challenge here in this psalm, and certainly important for us. So I'd like to take this really one phrase at a time here as we begin really the first, as I mentioned, the first two verses and the last two verses, David's declaration to Lord, to the Lord. Uh, we'll take those first. So we begin here simply with this idea of preserve me. Preserve me. Now, we're familiar with the acronym TULIP here. This idea that uh, we see that this is certainly not a, uh, not a complete summary of biblical theology, but nonetheless we begin with this idea of total, the total depravity of man. Uh, this idea that, uh, that without Christ taking the initiative, giving to us life, that we cannot savingly reach out to Him. Uh, we are so sinful in that way. We also see that the Bible reveals that our election is unconditional. This idea that, that there's nothing in us. We're not a beauty spot in God's eyes. We, he doesn't, uh, he's not attracted to us. But He has selected and decided intentionally that He might provide all the means of our, of our salvation and save us. And then thirdly, this idea of, of a limited atonement, of a particular atonement. This idea that, that, uh, that we see that God's saving grace could certainly be applicable to every individual that ever lived. But we see that it is apparently only applied to those who are redeemed. Because His blood and His ways are perfect. You see, God wouldn't be just if His blood was effectual for everyone and yet they were cast into hell. 
And so we see that the Bible reveals that His atonement is, in fact, particular. And then we see that His grace is irresistible. We see that, uh, again, in our totally depraved state, it is the Lord Jesus who must take the initiative and draw us along. Yet He does that in conjunction with our own desires. The reality is is that God changes what we want. He gives to us a growing affection for Himself and for the things of God. And then lastly, the P in this acronym is uh, often referred to as the perseverance of the saints. But many Bible students really uh, would prefer this idea that the psalmist brings to us, the preservation of the saints, because it casts the emphasis on the one who preserves us, that is, God. The reality is, is that we cannot hold ourselves to God in the rough and tumble of life, that He, in fact, preserves us to Himself. The Apostle John brought up this idea. Uh, He brought up this idea in that we see that those who are continually walking with Christ, albeit imperfectly, reveal, obviously, to the world that they are, in fact, being preserved. And John says in in his little letters uh, that they went out from us because they weren't of us. This idea that they aren't being preserved because they never were redeemed. And this is the idea that, that David really brings up here. And I think it's appropriate that we, we pay attention simply to this word, the preservation of the saints. Preserve me. A certainty. A life in union with the Lord Jesus is so durable that it's eternal. None of us experience durability like that in this day. We live in a day of planned obsolescence. We live in a day when they could make a washing machine last for 50 years, but they've decided to make it last for five. Uh, And so we understand uh, in certain measure durability, but not eternal durability. This idea that we're in union with the Lord Jesus, it's eternal. Now why is this so important? Why is it so important that we're preserved in our union with Christ? Well, it impacts our courage. It neutralizes concern over the consequences of faithfulness. Are you wondering what the cost will be for your faithfulness? You have nothing to fear. Because you see, God will preserve us in Him. Encourages us that we'll not stagnate also in progress in our faith. Aren't you thankful that as the Bible reveals in the book of Philippians that he who began a good work in you will complete it? Aren't you glad you don't have to stay like you are, like you were? Those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a while, you can, you can look back and you can say, that was a rocky road. But look at what the Lord has done. Look at what His grace applied to my own life has resulted in and what hope we can have for that. We should also see that this is preservation not to a mobile museum-like life, but to the hearty rough and tumble of the dominion mandate. The church isn't a wax museum. (laughs) It's not. It's a workhouse. It's a place uh, in which we not only hear and understand the Word of God, but we take that appropriate step and we enter into the praxis or the practice of the truths of God. He 
preserves us. Not preserve like in the freezer wrapped in plastic. Preserve like sustainment in the daily battles of life to finally arrive at our destination. The new heavens and the new earth. Oh sinner, don't fret about your life. Come to Christ and be at peace with all the things that cause you such concern. He preserves us. Preserves us. And then the next phrase we see here, Oh God, who else can accomplish this preservation but God? It's God who preserves, not ourselves. We are recreated in the recreation of our redemption. But we can't preserve ourselves in that. We have life, but we don't have life like Jesus. You might ask the question, who is it that raised Christ from the dead? Christ raised Himself from the dead. The Bible reveals that He has life in Himself. We don't have life in ourselves. We have life in Christ. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God. We don't have power to ourselves. We must always be united to Christ. But He holds us. We don't. And we can't hold ourselves. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I take refuge. Now let's think about this idea of refuge. Children, have you ever heard the term refuge before? It's not a term that we might use a lot. You might have heard the term wildlife refuge, for instance. Where is a, what is a wildlife refuge? It's a place where, where animals can, can be uh, in a relatively safe place, right? They can live in a safe place. It's not a zoo, but it's a, a little bit like one in some ways. And we've studied this idea of refuge in other places in Scripture as well. We see that ultimately we really should view this as, if you will, a safe place to fight. You see, the Bible describes our life as uh, certainly among other things, but uh, in general as a battle, as a battle. And so this refuge that is spoken of here can't be a place that would remove us from the challenges and difficulties of life. You see, and frankly, it isn't even uh, primarily a geographical place, right? Because what is our refuge? Our refuge is a person. It's the person of Christ, right? It's the person of God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Our God is not a brick wall, right? He isn't one that, uh, that, that is uh, designed to, to be, uh, in that sense, geographical, but we see that He is our refuge, He is our strength, It's a safe place to fight, not to forever nap out of danger. In the story of Pilgrim's Progress, you might recall when Christian went up the hill difficulty. And when he went up that hill, he came to the peaceful arbor. And the peaceful arbor, as is revealed in the the story, was set there so the pilgrims could have a short rest. But if you know the story, you know that Christian fell asleep. He fell asleep, lost the scroll that was given to him, and was then, as Bunyan said, benighted and also involved in danger. Danger during the day is one thing, but at night it's altogether different. 
And so Christian had that experience because he napped in a place of refuge. The Bible says in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. Now again, David is here speaking not to his friend. David isn't sharing the gospel with his neighbor here. David is speaking to God. It's one thing to say that we're a Christ follower to our neighbor or to our children. But when we say to God, you are my God. I consent to you. I follow you. You see, He knows us, right? He knows who we are. We, we don't fool Him. You see, what David is doing here is something that's quite bold. He looks to God. He declares to God, You are my Lord. I consent to you in your will and commands. I'm not capable of ruling myself completely. I cannot be my own Lord. You are Lord. I fully consent to you and to your rule and government. It's easy enough to profess to others. But to declare it to the Lord who sees and know all is another matter. It's another matter altogether. Do you boast of following Christ? You might even boast to yourself. That's even easier than boasting to your friends and neighbors, right? But what about when you look to the Lord? Can you make that declaration to Him? We know that David was not a perfect man. The Bible reveals that he was a great sinner as well as a great repenter. But he also fully embraced his consent to the Lord and his following of the Lord. Again here in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. God calls us to glorify Him, to worship Him. But, you know, we don't actually change God's glory when we worship Him. We don't uh, make Him more glorious when we worship God. You see, He's perfect. He's unchanging. He is, he is all-glorious, right? When we obey God, we don't, we don't make Him more authoritative, Right? But you see, you see God, is, God is worthy of our obedience and He is worthy of all authority and power. So David says here, I have no good apart from you. My union with Christ places me in goodness. What is good in me is from Christ. What is good in me is from Christ. Have you ever seen a, a craft that uh, you know, in which you know the maker? Some of you are very creative in this congregation. You make things and you have kind of some trademark ways in which you do things and someone may be able to look at a, you know, a piece of craftsmanship that you've made and say, yeah, I can tell that this individual made this. Well, we see here this phrase in, in verse 2, anything good in me is of Christ. The reality is, 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 can people look at you and see the fingerprints of Christ? Can they see His workmanship? 
in you. This idea. Can you agree with God that the good that is in me is through my union with the Lord Jesus? Is there a reflection of Christ? Do you, do you claim that for yourself or do you exalt God? Do you direct people to Him? These are David's declarations to God. And we see also in verses 10 and 11 the same idea. He declares to God, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is one of the messianic aspects of this. We know that the Lord Jesus was only in the grave three days. We know that this is a reflection not only of His, uh, of his life in general, but of His fleshly life. Not let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. Again, this is a reference uh, to a number of things, but certainly to the very first word in the psalm, preserve me. These are aspects of preservation, right? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What does the Bible reveal about us when we die? Well, those in Christ go to heaven directly. That's what the Bible reveals to a conscious, eternal existence awaiting our redeemed bodies. The Bible says in verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. You make known to me, not the path of death, the path of life. We're preserved in Christ. We walk with Him. We're living. We're the only people on earth that are really living. We're the only people on earth, the redeemed, that are really living. You show me the path of life. The path of life, not the path of death. So these are David's declarations to God. And the middle section here from verses 3 to 9, we have David here speaking God's truths to Himself. David speaking God's truths to himself. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land. Who are these? Children, when you hear the term saint, what do you think of? You might think of St. Paul, for instance. Or maybe the little... Titles in your Bible say Saint Luke or something like that. But what we understand is, is that all of the redeemed, all of those people that God has called to Himself, we are saints. We're the holy ones. We're the ones who've been redeemed. We're the ones that have been, uh, that have been justified in Christ. He's imputed or He's given to us. He's laid upon us His righteousness. Right? We're united with Christ. That makes us saints or holy ones. The peculiar people, the Jesus people, the justified people, the people being sanctified in Christ, those on the pilgrim way with us, the ones who profited by the work of the Lord Jesus. These are the saints in the land. And what do you think of them? Well, the psalmist reveals that... Uh, They're in a lofty position, right? The Lord Jesus loves us. He has set His affection on us through redemption. 
As a matter of fact, that's what the passage says. As for the saints of the land, who are they? Well, the psalmist says, I'm I'm glad you asked that, because they're, in fact, the excellent ones. They're the excellent ones. Despite their infirmities, the Lord thinks highly of them. He reckons them as nobles among men. They count themselves as less than nothing, but He makes much of them. This is a true declaration of reality. They are the excellent ones. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Jesus delights in us. My very first assignment to the Marine Corps, there was uh, an intentionality that struck me as something that was very good. Uh, The commanding officer in that place uh, had made the intentional decision that uh, none of the officers or senior enlisted would refer to the younger Marines as kids. It was a pretty common idea. Hey, you kids, we're going to the range. This, that, and the other. You understand. You see, they were referred to as Marines. They were referred to as who they are. When we, uh, the way that we address people has an impact on how, you see, they look at themselves. Now, this isn't some kind of psychobabble here. You see, what the Bible reveals right here is that they are the excellent ones. You, as one who's redeemed. And you see, what I found in that is that, is that they lived up to that. Right? If you continue to speak to me and about me as one who is a child or a failure, I will likely live up to your expectations. This is reality. This is your experience. You've experienced that. Uh, I know that you have, because that's a very common experience in life. And what we see here is the same reality here. This isn't some sort of fakery, right? But the reality is, is it should stiffen our back. It should give us courage. It should grant that we would recognize that we are of nobility. We are children of the King. We are the excellent ones. Now, here's the thing. Do you view God's people in that way? Because the reality is is that, is that every individual in this congregation is a worthy recipient of your ministry and love and devotion. They are the excellent ones. And we see, that, we see that the Lord works through this. As a world looks at what? At the way we love one another. And then they see this Christ, the living Christ. They are the excellent ones. Jesus delights in us, in whom is all my delight, says verse 3. His loving heart is given full freedom to lavish love upon His chosen ones. There is no better friend than Christ. The Christian also delights in these excellent ones. We're needful of their gifts. We're needful of their forgiveness. We're needful of their sharpening. We're needful of their compassion. But let me ask you a question. Do you delight in the saints of God? Or do you see them as undesirable? 
they're not very cool sometimes. Uh, you know, uh, maybe they can't play ball quite as well as you would hope. They're not as famous as people that you might look to. But there's a declarative statement here. You see, there is a distinguishing aspect of this that we shouldn't miss. You see, the Bible reveals here that the redeemed, in fact, those, as opposed to others, are the excellent ones. That's what is being told here. That's what we're... We're seeing revealed in the Scripture. You see, this is about our union with Christ. This is about uh, where we are in the world and in reality. You see, this is one of those places in Scripture, as there are many, where we have appropriately reset what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. Is it... The famous people who are famous for being famous, are they the ones that I should long for and look to as excellent? Or do I look to God's people? Do I look to the redeemed? Do they look to the one whom the Lord Jesus has lavished His love upon? The one whom He is working in? Do I look to them as the excellent ones? That's what the Bible reveals here. As a matter of fact, he goes on in describing those uh, who are not redeemed. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Jesus hates all wickedness, especially the high crime of idolatry. Sin and the Savior have no communion. He came to destroy, not to be allied with the works of the devil. Well, you might want to say, well, okay, well, so maybe... I'm not the excellent one, but maybe I'm just sort of the okay one. I'm sort of the mediocre one. I'm not the excellent one. You see, the Bible knows nothing of that. If you're not redeemed, if you're working against the things of God, then you have selected another God. You are an idolater. You're you're either worshiping yourself or your own desires or something else. Can we, in this, see where we are and desire, long for, pray that God would snatch the unredeemed out of their lostness into life? Verse 5, the psalmist recalls, The Lord is my chosen portion. He's my cup. Again, we have the excellent ones contrasted with those who have chosen another God. And then he looks... And makes a declaration, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. We spoke a few weeks ago about an intentional decision, day by day, moment by moment, to follow Christ. To follow Christ. I have decided this day. Not savingly, you see. I can only decide for Christ after I've been redeemed. We understand of all people that God must give us life first. He's the great mover. And then we're drawn with our affections to follow the Lord Jesus, but we recognize also that this this head knowledge must go to the heart, the mind, the will, the emotion, such that we then follow Him. The psalmist is telling us that here. He is making a declaration. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. An intentional decision to follow Christ. We see the same idea in verse 2 as well as verse 8. Verse 2, You are my Lord. You are my Lord. There is no other Lord. I am not my Lord. Someone else isn't my Lord. My boss isn't my Lord. You are my Lord. 
You are my Lord. Verse 8, also, I have set the Lord always before me. I've set the Lord always before me. Children, it's a funny thing. You go where you look. You go where you look. When you learn to drive, you'll very quickly understand that when you look to the side, you tend to drive that way. But you see, what we have here in Scripture, this idea that I have set the Lord, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord before me as I place my gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be able to follow Him. We see here in verse 13, excuse me, verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, children, the idea here with these lines really is a reference to, uh, to, the, to the Old Testament, to the laying down of, of the tribal places. Of This is for the tribe of Judah. This is their property. This is the land of this family and that family. These lines, these places that God has given in the promised land. And we see that there is a beautiful inheritance. The Bible says that. What is our inheritance. We speak of the riches that we have in the Lord Jesus. The Bible refers to them often as inheritance. What is an inheritance? What are some of the aspects of an inheritance, children? Someone has to die for you to receive it. Inheritance aren't uh, they're not worked for. We don't earn them. They're given. And we see here that that our inheritance, those things that we have in Christ, are beautiful. They're beautiful. And this is one of the aspects. I mean, does a new heavens and a new earth, does a perfect world, does a perfect you, does does that gain your affections? Does that seem like a beautiful inheritance to you? A perfect relationship with the Lord Jesus? Delights everlasting in heaven? Perfect communion with... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with all the saints that have gone before us. Indeed, a beautiful inheritance. Now I direct your attention to verse 7. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. So a question for us, how does the Lord counsel? Sometimes when we are looking for counsel, we may ask for discernment. It seems that uh, many ask for discernment, as they should. We need discernment. We need to know how to apply the Word of God to our situation. The Scriptures are spoken of as living, as working, as instructing, as dividing, as revealing, as judging, as comforting. When we take in the Bible and receive it as God's authoritative Word, we're being counseled by the Lord. When you read the Bible, do you receive that as His counsel? Do you receive that as a declaration from your Creator? The One who set in motion all the things by which you would be redeemed and also all the things by which you would enter into those works that He has redeemed you for, for your own faithfulness and so forth? Do you receive that as God's counsel? When we take in the Bible and receive it as God's authoritative word, we're being counseled by the Lord. The proclamation also obviously is His counsel. 
Our sharpening conversations can reveal the counsel of the Lord as they align with His thoughts. The world and much of the church, unfortunately, is in a dismal state because they have really rejected the counsel of God. This idea of judgment uh, in Psalm 119.66, for instance, teach me good judgment and knowledge has to do with taste. Good judgment is the ability to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong, to distinguish and recognize moral implications in different courses of action. The Bible says in verse 7 as well, in the night also my heart instructs me. Now the psalmist here is speaking not only of that which he has gained in his mind, if you will, in his head, this head knowledge, if you will, that he's gained, but also this meditation, in the night my heart instructs me. What it is that I have taken in the truths of God, I see that they continue their work as I meditate on them. And that's what's being revealed here in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. Many roll over problems in their head and eventually solve them in that way. We must meditate. But you see, our meditation is not a work ex nihilo. Children, the little Latin phrase ex nihilo has to do with out of nothing. We know that God made the earth how? He didn't have any raw materials. He didn't have a pickup truck full of lumber. He made it out of nothing. But you see, when we meditate, we don't meditate on nothing. We meditate and God will only use that which is we have taken in, which we have learned ourselves. That's why it's so important for us to be learners. This very idea of being a disciple of Christ has to do with learning with learning. A disciple is a learner if he's nothing. But you see many in the church today, including in Reformed theology, you see we, we seem to uh, sometimes stick to the head, if you will, and it doesn't seem sometimes to seep into the mind, the will, the emotions, the heart. My heart instructs me in the night. This is not exactly the same thing that David is coming to here, but I am persuaded it is a good opportunity to distinguish between head and heart understanding. Training the mind, the intellect takes in information and retains or forgets. Merely having the knowledge, grasping it mentally, does not equate to heart knowledge. Head knowledge is basically unapplied information that will puff up if it doesn't make it to the heart. Many people think they know the Lord because they've read His book. That's not what the reality of your experience has revealed, however. You know people that have read many books, and yet they're devoid of the counsel of the Lord. They've proven themselves unable to actually apply and enter into the truths of the Scripture. This is a serious problem. And this is a problem of head and heart. And when the, when the Scriptures speak of heart, I'm not referring, nor are the Scriptures referring primarily to feelings. Children, the Bible reveals here in this psalm that we are two-part beings, that we're body and soul, we're physical and non-physical. 
As a matter of fact, this place here in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. I propose to you here, we have the two parts. My heart is glad. My heart. It certainly can mean a number of things in Scripture, but in many places it is simply a reference to that which is non-physical. You want to know what makes you who you are? It's not your bones. It's not your blood. It's your soul. It's your heart. It's who you are. It's the non-physical aspect of your being. David speaks to it here. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. My physical body dwells secure as well. God, of course, doesn't leave that off. Does our understanding incline us to an encounter with the living Christ? This is a real question of heart knowledge. This is the real goal, frankly, for the proclamation of His Word. Can we be drawn by the proclamation of God's Word to an encounter with the living Christ through His living Word? Do I have resolve to enter into a relationship with Christ if I'm yet unredeemed, sitting under the proclamation of the Word of God? Or can I yet resolve to follow Christ more fully? Can I resolve and recognize a sin that I must repent of, an action that I'm needful in? That is heart knowledge. In verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me, as I mentioned, this concept of preservation. We walk toward that which we look at, because He is at my right hand. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The right hand is a position of honor. It's a position of honor. It's an interesting thing. On a Navy ship, when there's a guest of honor, he doesn't sit in the captain's spot. He sits to the right of the captain. And so we see this idea here as well. You see, this is the place of honor, but also we see of preference. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. The other reference here and the idea is that it is as close as my right hand. In other words, He's always there, always ready. When Pilgrim needed help in the slough of despond, he didn't have to wait. (laughs) Help was there. That's the idea. At my right hand. He preserves us. We don't have to wait for God. He's omnipresent, omnipowerful. The Bible says in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad. What is your response? What is your response to these truths of God? To the fact that He is at our right hand, that He is all-powerful, that He counsels us even in the night. Does your heart rejoice? Do you have the affections of one who has been redeemed? Let us pray.